Galatians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9 today. And if there's one thing I want to get across to you today, it is that the gospel is of utmost importance. The one thing I want you to leave today understanding better than when you came is that the gospel is of utmost importance. But even as I say that, it seems like the sound of those words ring hollow compared to the reality of what they're trying to express. There's a lot of things that are legitimately important. It's important to have a good job. It's important to change the oil in your car regularly. It's important to pay your bills on time, to feed your children, to discipline them, to love your wife. All of these things are important. It's important to exercise. We have many worldly things that are important, and so when I say the gospel is also important in the same way, it's almost like I'm being disrespectful to it. Jesus expressed how important the gospel is when he said, repent or perish. You might ask, okay, well, what's the third option? There isn't one. You either repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you perish. There is no third option outside of these things. There's no option in between them. There is no purgatory. You must repent, or you will perish. And so the gospel is of utmost utmost importance right off the bat, because it's a matter of life and death. But it's not a matter of life and death, like cancer is, or like, like a global nuclear war is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. The truth is, everyone here has a never-dying soul, and there is nothing more precious in your possession than that. You will live forever, either in a state of perpetual bliss in the presence of God with every last inkling of sin removed, or you will spend an eternity paying for the sins that you have committed against a holy God in a lake of fire of unimaginable torture, completely cut off from the God who made you. You see why I say that the gospel is of utmost importance? There is nothing more important than the gospel. There is nothing that approaches the importance of the gospel. The gospel reigns supreme because there's so much at stake. And what we want to do this morning and this afternoon, in fact, is to show you from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, that Paul is showing us how important the gospel is. And let me give you the outline. Number one, Paul shows us that the gospel is of utmost importance by his unusual omission. There's something missing in this letter that appears in every other letter that's gone here. And it shows us that he thinks the gospel is of utmost importance. Number two, Paul shows us that the gospel is of utmost importance in his astonished disposition. He says to the Galatians, I am astonished. 
Number three, the gospel is important in this passage because of the description of the root cause of the controversy. Number four, Paul shows us that the gospel is of utmost importance because of what he tells us to do with those who oppose the gospel. So you should already be there at Galatians 1. Let me catch up to you, and I'll go ahead and read the first few verses of chapter 1. I'll go ahead and start at the beginning and just read through verse 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the first point is kind of interesting. I'm going to preach on something that's not there. There's something here that is missing. And it appears in all of the other letters that Paul gives to the churches. And this establishes an urgency and and therefore an importance to the topic that Paul is taking up, the gospel itself. To see this, and this is easier if you have an actual physical copy of the Word of God, just physically look at Galatians chapter 1, just for some visual observations, and ask yourself, and if you have an ESV, the headings are quite clear, it's not as clear if you're looking at an NASV or some of the other versions, but in the ESV, ask yourself, at what point does Paul get into the body of his letter? And by that, we can see how long his introduction is. He gets into the body in verse 6. And when I'm looking at the introduction, it's like that long. How many words are there? At least in the ESV, there's 82 words. This is short. This is a short introduction for Paul. It is atypical compared to all of his other letters. And so what we must ask is, why? Why is this introduction so short? Why does Paul seem so rushed that he can't wait to get to the body of his letter? The thing that is missing in this letter that is apparent in every other letter to the churches, if you look at his, le- at his pastoral epistles, It might not contain this. One of them doesn't, if I remember. But all of his letters to the churches contain a section devoted to prayers and thanksgiving. This is an unusual omission. 
So let me first establish for you that this is missing and show you how this shows us that the gospel is of utmost importance. To see this, I'm just going to pick a few examples of his other letters. And I'll say this now, and I think I might have it in my notes later. If you really want to get the force of this, what you need to do is read his other letters and then read Galatians last. And it's striking how obvious it is that something is missing here. So turn first to Romans chapter 1. And as you turn there, I'll read some parts of Romans chapter 1. He says, starting in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And what Paul is doing there, he's he's going on and on and on on these wonderful gospel truths in verses 3 through 7. In verse 1, there's a positive assertion that he's an apostle. And if you remember last time, Paul right off the bat says, in Galatians, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. He's defending himself right away. So even in his short introduction in Galatians, he gets confrontational right away. And when you read other books like, like Romans, Paul appears to be in no rush. After his introduction there from verses 1 through 7, um, and in verse 7 at the end, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He devotes more space than the entire introduction of Galatians to saying, I long to come and see you in a section of prayers and thanksgiving for the Christians in Rome. This is what's characteristic of Paul's letters. He is in no rush to get through his introduction, and he takes time to declare his love for the people that he's writing to and to tell them that he prays for them. And in this case, that he is longing to come and see them, and that he has tried to do so, but God has hindered him. You may say, okay, well, that's Romans. Maybe there weren't, there, maybe there weren't many problems in Rome. Well, let's look at one where there were a lot of problems. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There were many problems in Corinth. Paul gets pretty confrontational in this book later on. But listen to his introduction, starting in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And then this has bearing later, so I'll read the very first verse of the body of his letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, etc., etc. The general tone of that letter is so different from Galatians chapter 1. He has kind words to the Corinthians in his section on thanksgiving and prayer in verses 4 through 9. And then when he finally does get to the body of his letter, he has to address an issue right away, but look at how gentle he is. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Now consider the issues in the letter. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know know that the problems that they were facing were divisions in the church. There were some that said they followed Paul, some followed Apollo, some followed Cephas. They were having parties and getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. And there was a man sleeping with his father's wife. But to those things, Paul doesn't say, I am astonished. He devotes a total of nine words and 179 verses and 174 words in this English translation to his introduction to the Corinthians. In general, some observations about his letters that I'll give you here that you can check on your own. Of his letters to the churches, Paul was accustomed to giving a greeting, a section for prayers, blessings, or thanksgiving to his recipients followed that greeting. On average, he devotes 11 verses and 239 words to such introductions in the ESV. Galatians has the shortest introduction of all the letters to the churches, to the churches. The next shortest is 2 Thessalonians, and even there, there are two verses devoted to prayers and thanksgiving. So then we come to Galatians. There's only five verses, such a short introduction, which itself contains an undertone of confrontation. Paul is defending himself in the fourth word. I'm an apostle, not from men, nor through man. There is an urgency to this letter. Paul comes to the Galatians, not lacking any grace towards them, for he does say grace to you and peace, but he does nevertheless come with an attitude of bold, fearless confrontation. I can imagine him writing the letter, although he probably had somebody write it for him while he dictated, but I can imagine um, if he were to write the letter, and at least by the end of Galatians, it appears he may have physically written some of the letter, pressing hard on the paper. But even if we or an angel from heaven should declare to you another gospel, let him be anathema. You can almost sense this urgent appeal to the Galatians because they are playing with fire. They are playing with their never-dying souls. Paul was called to testify to the gospel, and that's what he's doing. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
So we've got to ask Paul, why the rush? You might be losing your audience if you're not buttering them up before you get into the body of your letter. Suppose that you were to go up to a crosswalk, and it's a busy intersection. There's maybe four lanes and a median, and you push the button. It says, don't walk. You need to wait for it to walk, because if you walk before it says, uh, before it says to do so, you might get hit with a bus or something, right? Now suppose that a lady's walking, and you see her walking fast, and she's going right towards that intersection, and there's a city bus coming, and you see a collision coming. Are you going to say to that lady, my, what a nice dress you're wearing. Hi, how are you doing? Isn't the weather nice today? How do you do? No, you would grab her and you would wrench her out of harm's way. And you wouldn't ask her permission. Because there is an urgent, immediate threat. Because if you don't do that, it won't matter what she's wearing or what she's doing or where she's going or who she's going to see or what the weather will be like tomorrow or even how she is because she'll be dead. So similarly, if the Galatians lose the gospel, Paul can't say of them that they are loved by God and called to be saints. He can't say of them like he says about others that their faith is proclaimed in all the world or that they were given the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Because without the gospel, there is only hopelessness. Without the gospel, there is only death. And so he appears to rush here and skip over some of the formalities that he takes the time to go through in his other letters because of the urgency of what's at stake, the gospel itself. Now, if he was addressing some less important subjects, such as church divisions, getting drunk during the Lord's Supper, or a man in the church having relations with his father's wife, he would perhaps have taken more time, as was typical for him. But since the gospel is of utmost importance, there is an urgency in this letter. There is a rush to get to the body, and so he omits what he typically includes in all of his other letters. And he says, I am astonished that you are abandoning God. And the question we have to ask ourselves in light of this, do we take the gospel that seriously? Do we treat it as if it's a matter of life and death? Jesus said, repent or perish. Those are our options. If those are the only options, do our attitudes and actions towards the truth of the gospel reflect that importance? If you say yes, I might ask you, well, can you explain the gospel on the fly? Can you defend it? Do you, do you remind yourself of it by revisiting that old story in the word of God time and time again? Or do days, weeks, months, years go by and you are content with not opening a copy of the word of God? Are you content with not speaking of the gospel to your children for days and days or weeks and months? We might say to the Corinthians, I'm astonished. 
you sinners. We need to hold the gospel in utmost importance because it is. And so may God help us to take the gospel with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, Another little application here before I get to the next point. This tells us something of how carefully we need to read and study the scriptures. The method I've used here in this first point shows this. We need to read the scriptures carefully and thoughtfully. We need to read them like we are hungering and thirsting for the knowledge of the word of God. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Here's what I mean. A simpler example. In Galatians 1, verse 13, it says this. Oh, I'm on 1 Corinthians. Let me go to Galatians here. 1 Corinthians 1.13 says this. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. What do I mean by reading a verse like that carefully? Well, read it slowly. Look at each word and think about it. He says, for you have heard to the Galatians. It's right for us to ask questions like, When did Paul tell them these things? Can we corroborate that statement with what is given in the account of his life after the road to Damascus, where he was converted? Can we see when maybe he told them about that in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and 14, where he visited the region of Galatia? What I mean is that Sometimes we need to read the scriptures like a detective. We want to search and dig and scratch. And when we have a question, don't let it go. And read it very carefully. Don't just gloss over it. And as you read your scriptures daily, I hope, don't just get through it and be done. And don't just treat it as something that you check off on your list. If you start reading your copy of the Word of God and say you're somewhere in the Psalms and you read the third verse that you're supposed to read out of three or so chapters that day and you have questions, go for it. Investigate it and maybe spend your 15 or 20 minutes investigating that and meditating just on that one verse. And you might not get to check off that box that day, but that's okay. We need to carefully read the Word of God and think about it. We're blessed because we have so many resources available to us to help us with this. Um, And I I can't remember if if I noticed it myself or if I read it somewhere else, but had I not have been carefully reading this word by the grace of God, I wouldn't have noticed that there's a big difference between this letter and other letters. And so I wouldn't have gleaned something important from it. So read your copy of the scriptures like a detective. Read it like you really want to know the truth. Our second point. The gospel is of utmost importance because we see it in Paul's astonished disposition. 
So first, let's look at the words here. Paul says he starts the body of his letter with a statement of exasperation. He says, I am astonished. Now, let me tell you the sense in which the word is not used here. The word, that word there for astonished can mean to wonder or to be amazed or to marvel. That same word, for example, is used to describe Jesus's reaction at the faith of the centurion who affirmed that Jesus only needed to say the word as opposed to going to visit the sick. He only needed to say the word and the sick would be healed. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter eight and verse five, and we can read that. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When he had heard this, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. That's the same word. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. The word is also used frequently in the Gospels to describe a crowd's reaction to Jesus' miracles. So he heals a lame man or something like that, and the crowd is astonished. It's also used as a reaction to listeners at the wise teachings of Christ, who is humanly speaking unlearned. They would hear Jesus teach with authority, and they marveled at his authority. They marveled at his teaching, wondering, don't we know who this is? Don't we know his father and his mother? Isn't this just a carpenter? How is he saying these wonderful things about the truth of God? And they marveled. That is not the sense in which Paul is saying this. He's not saying, I'm astonished that you guys, more than anyone else, have quickly deserted God. That is amazing. Obviously, that's not what he means. Paul is not impressed. He's not confused. The more generalized definition of the word is to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed. So there's a positive and a negative connotation here. Well, how do you figure out which one? Well, the context. Paul is not saying that he's impressed that the Galatians are abandoning Christ. He is disturbed. Some synonyms we might use, disturbed, agitated, disquieted, confounded, shocked, stunned. The thought of the Galatians abandoning Christ by accepting a different gospel is a staggering and disturbing consideration for Paul's mind. And he expresses that shock by saying, I am astonished. It's as if he's saying right after his rushed introduction to the Galatians, is what I'm hearing correct? 
I can't believe my own ears when I hear the reports that you are actually abandoning him who called you in the grace of Christ. This is disturbing news. Well, why did he feel this way? Why is he worked up? Why is he so astonished? Well, I already said it. I'll say it again, just reading on in the verse. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Did you catch what that said? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. It is not a thing that they are deserting. It is a person. Well, who are they deserting? The text says it right there. You are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So the next question is, who called them in the grace of Christ? Well, he says so a few verses later, and I've got to get back there because I'm in Matthew, Galatians 1, 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. So Paul is alluding to the same one who called me by his grace. I'll give you the answer here. God the Father elects God the Father, effectually calls his people to himself. Turning to Romans 8 in verse 30. And those whom he, that is God the Father, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this one you can turn to if you like, 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9. 2 Timothy 1, I'll read 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. They are deserting the one who called them in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means they are deserting God. They are not deserting an idea or a doctrine or some theology or some ideology. They are deserting God himself by running to a different gospel. That word for deserting means to change one's mind, to turn away, to put in another place, or to renounce. Paul is so worked up because the Galatians were abandoning the very God who gives them life, breath, and being. And so his reaction is proportional to the seriousness of their meanderings to another gospel. He says, I am astonished. If that doesn't show us that theology is important, I don't know what will. There are real implications to believing wrong things. Believing wrong things is equated here to abandoning God himself. 
Paul is also astonished at the pace of their desertion. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You remember in John chapter 20, remember John was written by John. Uh, In John chapter 20, there's that account of Peter and John running to the tomb. And John likes to point out and emphasize that he won. That word that he uses there, outran, it's the same word as quickly here. He says both of them, that is Peter and John, were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The Galatians were immediate in their decline to another gospel, in their abandonment of God. No sooner than Paul had left Galatia had the ravenous wolves come in to trouble them with another gospel. It's as if Paul is coming at them like a mother would to her young children. I can't leave you for a minute. I turn my back for two seconds, and what do I find? And I really believe this is another argument for the earlier date of the book. I believe Galatians was written a little bit before the Jerusalem Council, which addressed the same subject that Paul is addressing in Galatians. That is, circumcision as a requirement of salvation. But he's astonished because they so quickly are turning away from God. He was just there. He was just there, and he's either on his way back to Jerusalem or maybe in Jerusalem awaiting that Jerusalem council to start, and he hears that they're abandoning God. And it's as if he's saying, can't you remember what we just went through together? I already gave you the gospel. Why are you listening to these troublers? But there's still hope in Paul's words here. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He does not say, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him. There is something happening as Paul's writing the letter, not something that had already happened. And so Paul's not on a mission of of just beating up the Galatians. This is a rescue mission. He's protecting the flock of Christ in the churches of Galatia. He is like a surgeon trying to remove cancer. He is not like a butcher trying to destroy. He's exemplifying his words to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. We see here what love for the flock can look like. It is not always rainbows and sunshine. Some call this tough love, but I just prefer to call it love. Love has the interest of its object in mind. It was not in the best interest of the Galatians to chase after a false gospel. It is not in their best interest to abandon the God who made them. And so he comes on strong because he loves the Galatian church. And he seeks to protect them in this letter because it's not that the wolves are coming. It's that they're there. They're not even at the gate. They are in their own ranks devouring as he's writing this letter. 
we see here that there's an unbreakable connection between gospel truths and the end goal of the gospel, to bring men to God. That's what the gospel does. It brings us to God. To reject the truth of the gospel is not simply to reject one worldview out of many others. It is not just to reject a confession of faith or a religion or an ideology. Rejecting the gospel is rejecting God himself. I have a dear friend, and many years ago I spoke with him about the gospel. He's not a believer. And he said to me, I just don't understand how anybody can say that one religion is better than another. I said, well, if none of it matters, then none of it can be true. You're assuming that it's all false. But we believe the gospel because we believe it's actually true. Religion, true religion, is not just a sham. We don't just make it up to make ourselves feel better about dying. The words, even that word, better religion, that reveals something of his own presuppositions. He's assuming it's all subjective. Choosing a religion, then, is just like choosing your favorite flavor of ice cream. Whatever makes you happy, that's what you pick. You can make a lot of friends in this world by maintaining that point of view. The world is all about everything being subjective. There is no real truth, it's just what's true for you. But we see here in this letter that the gospel is objective. Not believing it has real consequences in eternity. It is true. It really does reconcile men to God. It saves us from his wrath, and rejecting it has real-world consequences. And so it's for all these reasons that Paul is astonished, that the Galatians are so quickly deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ. And by that astonishment, we can see that the gospel is of utmost importance. A few points of application on this heading we see Paul's firm example that we should follow here. Paul does not get so worked up as in this letter when he deals with the Corinthians, even when they were tolerating a man sleeping with his father's wife. What gets Paul so worked up and confrontational is when the Galatians begin walking away from God by means of a false gospel. And we need to ask ourselves honestly, Which would disturb us more, moral compromise or gospel compromise? I'm not excusing moral compromise, and I'm not playing down what Paul had to address with the Corinthians. That is a serious sin that has to be dealt with. What I want to try to say here is we need to have an elevated reverence and esteem for the gospel that is supreme to all other issues. We ought not get so upset over other Christians doing things, for example, 
On the Lord's Day, we think they ought not to do. Wearing things we think they ought not to wear. Seeking a spouse in ways we think they ought not to do. Or consuming media that we think we that we think they ought not to consume. But then, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong in and of themselves. There are things that we have to be concerned with there. But if we do those things and then we don't react to gospel compromise, there's a problem with our priorities. I wrote a book review once and I was very harsh with the author because I felt he was compromising the gospel. A couple of brothers told me I was too harsh. They said, don't be so harsh. We agree with all your points, but you were too harsh. I said, well, when are we to be harsh if we're not to be harsh when the gospel's at stake? On the other hand, we need to keep in mind that Paul is also gracious in his letter to the Galatians. He's not given up on them. While it is short, he still does say, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He still does include them in the church of Jesus Christ. He addresses them as churches in Galatia. And he still does not separate them out. Excuse me. He still does separate them out from those heretics who were spreading a false gospel. He is treating them as sheep in the midst of wolves in grave danger and not as wolves who need to be shot. And so we need to learn from this and not be so quick to pronounce anathemas upon another when a brother or sister needs instruction or clarification on some points of doctrine. Let us not be so quick to cry wolf. Turning now to our third point. This letter shows us that the gospel is of utmost importance by the description of of the controversy's root cause. It's important that we ask, why did this happen in the church in Galatia? Because we want to protect ourselves also. So we should ask, where is this coming from? Are the Galatians dreaming up these ideas themselves? Are they expressing their sinful creativity on foundational gospel truths? The text tells us where it's coming from. I've got to get back there to Galatians chapter 1. I'll read it again, starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And here's the root cause. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the root cause. Excuse me, I I confused myself here. I got ahead of myself. Okay, so the the root cause here is these troublers. Note first that there's two groups of people being addressed here. Or to say it more accurately, there are two groups of people of concern in this letter. 
There's the one group being addressed, which is the churches of Galatia. And then there's this other group of the troublers. There are those for whom Jesus Christ gave himself to deliver them from the present evil age. These are the Christians. And then there are the troublers who are not part of that group. And you can see it right there in Galatians 1, 7. There are some who trouble you and went and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The some in this passage is clearly a separate group from the you. There's you, the Galatians, and there's these troublers over here. They're mutually exclusive groups. Other verses in Galatians refer to this, refer to these groups, but due to time, I'm not going to go there. But if you want to on your own, you can look, for example, at Galatians 4, 17 and 21, and it talks about these other groups. The Galatians aren't being disturbed by themselves. They're not being creative. It's not a problem in their own hearts um, in, a, in a certain sense. It's not a problem in their own hearts. This is a separate group of people within their ranks troubling them. And why do I bring this out? Because those who are troublers of the gospel are not in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a group of people who likely attended these churches, maybe even faithfully attended the services. I would argue probably most certainly they were among the very faithful of attendees at these services. For how else would they have gained such influence to provoke a letter from the apostle like this? And so the root cause of the controversy here is these troublers. They are a separate group from the people in the churches of Galatia. Well, who are these troublers? That's the next obvious question. We know that they're troublers, but who are they? Well, let's look at how they're described, how they're identified, and then their actions. They are described as troublers. For they are bringing trouble to the Galatian churches. He says right there, but there are some who trouble you. A troubler is one who brings trouble. This is one who disturbs, afflicts, or molests. It can mean to put to inconvenience, exertion, pains, or the like. The original word here means to throw into confusion, to stir up, or to disturb. When Jesus wept in John 11... He did so because he was greatly troubled. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and his disciples thought he was some kind of spirit or ghost, they were troubled. Today, some are troubled about the war in Ukraine. Some are troubled about the state of our nation. Whoever they were, they were disturbing the Galatian churches from their duty in fulfilling the marching orders of the church as given by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Commission. We go and make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. But the very message that they were proclaiming was under attack. And so they are described as troublers. But who were they? What was their identity? I'm not going to try to prove this, but these were the Judaizers. This was a group of people in the early in early Christianity who adopted and encouraged other Christians to adopt Jewish customs. 
Some of them were ethnic Jews who had adopted Christianity, and some were Gentile converts to Judaism who had later accepted Christianity, at least outwardly. Not all in this group attached a saving significance to adherence to the Jewish law. But the particular group here in Galatia were. So some groups were kind of culturally Jewish. They would say, you should observe these customs because we've always done it and it's just a cultural thing. There's the gospel, you should believe that, yeah, and this has no saving significance. This group was saying, no, you should be circumcised or you won't be saved. You need to follow the Jewish law or you will not go to heaven. I believe that this group in Galatia was among those being addressed in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which deal with this very same issue of circumcision as a means of salvation. So as it turns out, this issue is not isolated in Galatia. I believe this book was written just before the Jerusalem Council, which dealt with the very issue. And you can read that in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, in verse 24, I will just read that. I didn't write it down. In Acts 15, 24, this is the account of the Jerusalem Council. And it's interesting how these Judaizers are described there. It says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. So I think that the group here that Paul is speaking of, these troublers, is a subgroup of a larger group of Judaizers that was kind of wreaking havoc on early Christian theology. That's their identity. What were they doing? Well, they were, they were suggesting that you had to accept circumcision in addition to the gospel in order to be saved. Note how it's described in Galatians 1.7. He said, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. To distort something means to twist it awry and out of shape, to make it crooked or deformed. When you twist something, it might resemble the undistorted version of itself, but it's now entirely useless. I have a shed key that's twisted. I never noticed it was twisted until I stuck it in the lock and it wouldn't open the lock. It no longer works for its purpose, though it's twisted in a very small way that you can't even perceive unless you look at it closely. This is what they were doing, twisting and distorting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That one message that brings men to God. They were distorting that. The doctrine of utmost importance, they said, let's go after that. And so what's the effect that this has on the, on the gospel itself? Well, in the first place, we've got to acknowledge that it triggered this harsh letter from the Apostle Paul. Everything we've just said about how strongly Paul is coming after the Galatian churches in this letter was done so because of what these Judaizers were teaching about the gospel in the Galatian churches. And in the end, it rendered the gospel powerless. Excuse the language there, I'm going to explain it. It rendered the gospel powerless. Now, what I don't mean is that the gospel can be rendered powerless. 
We know that God is sovereign. There's none who can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We know, according to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, that every one of his sheep will hear his voice and will follow him. No one can render the true gospel powerless. It is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. But the gospel that was being proclaimed was a powerless one because it was not the true gospel. And what they were saying, what were they saying that the gospel was? They said, yes, man is sinful. Man needs a savior. Yes, that savior is provided in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you have to repent of your sins. You have to believe upon him. But you just got to add this circumcision thing. That's it. It's just like that shed key of mine that won't work anymore. It's so close to the original key. I had to look at it closely, and you have to know that it's there. If I showed it to you, you wouldn't see that it's there, unless you looked closely and you knew what you were looking for. But though it's twisted very subtly, it doesn't work. There's only one gospel. There's only one message that will truly bring men to God. And that is the true gospel as we find in the scriptures. So in the same way, while these Judaizers only changed, they changed what is by today's standards a small thing. There are distortions and twists to the gospel that make this pale in comparison. This is, the Judaizers have nothing on us today. Their gospel could not save. It was no gospel at all. It was not good news. The reason the gospel has power is because it saves. Matthew Henry comments on Romans 1.16 where it talks about the gospel being the power of God. He says the gospel shows us the way of salvation and is the great charter by which salvation is conveyed and made over to us. And this is why, for the rest of chapter 1 and a good portion of chapter 2, Paul seeks to demonstrate that the gospel that he preached to the Galatians was received by direct revelation from God. Their distortion is small compared to some of the ways that the gospel is getting distorted today. To add this little thing of circumcision is a much smaller thing than the wealth and prosperity gospel. We see then that the gospel is of utmost importance because of how the root cause of this Galatian controversy was harshly described. Troublers who distort the gospel and render the one true message that can bring men to God, that can save them from their sins, powerless I can't resist saying this as a Baptist I have to mention if baptism is a new covenant replacement for circumcision why does Paul not bring it up in the passage doesn't that end the argument they're saying you've got to be circumcised to be saved 
If that was true, Paul would say, oh no, baptism replaces circumcision. There you go. Argument's done. In the letter, he even refers to Abraham and uses Hagar and Sarah as an illustration, but he never says that baptism replaces circumcision. This is a glaring omission unless baptism doesn't actually replace circumcision. Instead of this being a book clarifying Old and New Covenant signs, Paul is on a rigorous defense of the heart of the gospel that salvation is by grace alone and not by works of the law. Because in the New Covenant dispensation, we are circumcised in the heart. The new birth or regeneration is the substance of which the sign of circumcision pointed, not baptism. And the second and final point of application for this hour, we should ask ourselves, are we too soft? Are we too soft in our day in defending the gospel? The Judaizers really weren't claiming to radically change the gospel, but it still instigated this very harsh letter from Paul. We need to be quick to renounce false gospels in our day, and we need to not be afraid of sounding mean. It is not wrong to refute in harsh terms the false prosperity gospel and call it what it is, a doctrine of the devil whose only power is to damn people who desperately need the gospel to hell. It is appropriate sometimes to name names when it comes to those masquerading as ministers of the gospel who have so drastically distorted the message that it's like trying to open that lock with a banana. Uh, Years ago, I gave a sermon and I spoke against Uh, the popular preacher at the time, I don't know what he is now, uh, Joshua Harris. It was right around the time when he had apostatized. And you remember he wrote that book in the 90s, like his stating goodbye, it was real popular. Um, And I remember I asked Brother Sean, I said, hey, you know, let's just not include that in the recording. You know, I, I don't need that. And Sean said, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we need to call people out. My brother was right. I don't know if we kept it in there or not, but thank you for saying that. I needed to hear that at that time. So we need to not be soft when it comes to defending the gospel. May God help us to love the gospel in such a way that we would be quick to defend it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do indeed love the gospel. We are thankful that we are friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, for we all need him to save us and to redeem us. We thank you, Lord, for declaring your word to your people of old and preserving it through the ages, giving us so many gifted men throughout 2,000 years of church history that we can glean these wonderful um, teachings of scripture and learn by them. I pray, Lord, that in our hearts as Christians that we would love the gospel more, that we would um, count it a great blessing, that we have a present peace with God, and though there are many things in this world that we 
worry about and are even sinfully anxious about, uh, the most important thing that matters is that we have peace with God, and we have it in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you and thank you for that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.